This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean, Ships Registry, Bahamas. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, this is Football Social Daily, the only daily Premier League podcast that keeps you up to date with the latest news and the latest views from the English top flight with a new show every 24 hours. Give us a subscribe now so you never miss a show. And me, Jim Salverson, and him, Marley Anderson. Hello. And him, Niall McCorn. Hi, guys will help keep you up to date with everything that's going on in the Premier League. The madness of the transfer window has just about calmed down now. So if you want to pick over the best deals and who won the transfer window, then not only can you listen to yesterday's podcast, but there's a great article over on the Sports Social website, sports-social.co.uk, called Ranking Every Premier League Club's Transfer Business. And it tells you how exactly every club did, who they brought in, who they got rid of, and how it set them up for the season. Aston Villa apparently at the top of that list and West Ham at the very bottom. And it's West Ham we'll be chatting about later in today's Floodlight Focus as we put the Hammers and their chaotic season under the spotlight in the company of the mysterious West Ham blogger, podcaster and ITK ex-West Ham United employee. We're also going to talk England and discipline as Gareth Southgate reportedly lays down the law to his players ahead of their game against Wales after yet more Covid rule breaking in the England camp. And we'll tackle some of your questions that have come in via our social channels with all questions answered. And when I say tackle, I'm thinking more a Roy Keane crunching tackle than a Paolo Maldini cultured and graceful tackle. So watch your ankles there. But first, let's start with England and Southgate apparently reading the riot act to his squad and reminding them exactly what it means to play for England after, as I said, more rule breaking from the Young Lions. So the story is that Tammy Abraham, Jaden Sancho and Ben Chilwell all dropped for the Wales game tomorrow, but still in the squad. That's after breaking COVID-19 rules after attending Tammy Abraham's surprise birthday party, which had more than the allowed six people attending it. Now, their absence, their being dropped, isn't a discipline issue. It's more because they're unlikely to actually get the results of their COVID tests in time to be given the all clear and appear in the squad. But it feels like this situation, Niall, is very, very different to the way that England and Southgate handled 
the situation around Phil Foden and Mason Greenwood when they broke the rules in Iceland by having Icelandic models back to their hotel. But ultimately, it's a very similar breakdown of rules. So why is it being handled so differently? It's a really interesting point. Um, I don't know, is the answer. And the only person that does know is Gareth Southgate. And, you know, I've spoken reasonably passionately about the way that Foden and Greenwood were treated. And I think Marley probably has a different view to me on this. I felt that sending them home was a punishment enough. They've learned from their mistakes. They were embarrassed in the press. Um, And, you know, especially during an international break where nothing's really going on in the Premier League in terms of the club scene, the international scene takes centre stage. And I think that they were kind of hung out to dry a little bit in the press and they, they probably learned their lesson from that. And the fact that they were young as well perhaps gave them a little bit um, of a free pass in terms of the fact that they have you know more likely to make mistakes because they're slightly more immature. Whereas you look at this crop of players, um, Abraham, Chilwell, etc. I think it was Tammy Abraham's birthday party, was it not, that they were all mm. rocking up to. They should know better. A surprise birthday party. So it's a bit mean to maybe pin this on Tammy Abraham because he had no idea how many people were going to be there. It would have been <laughs> rubbish if he turned up and gone, whoa, did more he, than six people did there. Did he not know he was turning 23? <laughs> Wouldn't put it past him. He certainly didn't know there was a party. So he, there was no, he <laughs> can't have known there was more than six people there. Yeah. And like you say, you can't just turn up to your birthday party and then leave because you go, hey, this isn't COVID secure, guys. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> awkward telling one of your mates to f- off as well isn't it when there's uh, when there's too many of you so yeah um yeah. no i can see what you're saying but i mean i think that this one has been dealt with differently purely because if southgate gets rid of no 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 abraham chilwell etc from his squad there isn't going to be anyone left i mean you're going to be scraping the barrel of possible england players um if you just send everyone home but i mean the game against wales being dropped for that is fair enough it's a friendly But there are two Nations League games coming up. One of them is against Belgium, who at this moment in time are the highest ranked international football side in the world, Um, Mm. uh, you know, let alone in Europe. And of course, it's the Euros coming up. But this Nations League qualifier against Belgium is going to be a a big game for England and a big test for England. Let's not forget Raheem Sterling's pulled out of the squad as well because he's injured. So... I do think that it's going to be a a slog for the England side and a slog for Gareth Southgate if he ends up sending these players home. So I think that he probably expected everyone to kind of take heed of what Foden and Greenwood did and the way that Southgate dealt with the situation and probably take that in their stride and think, right, we better not do that again because the gaffer is going to punish us. But unfortunately for Southgate, it's kind of backfired on him. It's almost a double bluff in a way where the players have still gone out and broken COVID protocols, but yet Southgate can't really afford to send all of them home because he will have a completely weak squad, Mm. which has already been kind of um, depleted slightly due to injury. So I just think it's a a difficult one, really. Um, it's, It's quite frustrating when you hear people mention about how Gareth Southgate's been banging the drum of what it means to play for England, because I think he knows exactly what it means purely from a perspective of he missed a penalty in a major tournament to the point where my mum, bless her, who's not a huge football fan, when he became England manager said, I'll never forgive that man for what he's done, referring to his penalty miss in Euro 96, which is quite funny. Uh, Or was it World Cup 98? I can't quite remember. Um, But certainly you you, you say, Jim, about do people really care about the England shirt and the pride in the England shirt? I don't think anyone does anymore unless it's a World Cup. Or a Euros. Like, that was going to be my question. Marley, what does it mean to wear the England shirt? Because Calvert-Lewin was saying in his pre-match press conference ahead of England versus Wales that Gareth Southgate laid it on the line. He told the players what it meant, reminded them what it meant to wear the England shirt. But does it mean anything 
to a modern player because even for fans, it's very much club over country nowadays. Uh, it it should do. There's no reason why it, why it shouldn't. I mean, representing your country at international level should be, you know, the pinnacle of your career. But I think I think these days, I think once people are in the squad, they kind of they just sort of lose. They take it for granted, and I think they they lose motivation for it. So, you know, you know that Harry Maguire and Jordan Henderson and people like that are gonna be in the squad every every um, every time it gets picked, and you see them. You know, you see, you see every every time a squad's announced within forty eight hours, at least three people have pulled out. So it's almost like, mm. like Sterling, for example, this time. I think if Man City had a game this weekend, he'd play. But it's an international break, and it's a chance to have ten days off in a hectic schedule. So why, you know, why wouldn't you take it? Why wouldn't you be a bit smart about it? Do you want to go and play a friendly against Wales on Thursday night? Uh, no, of course you don't. But should it work like that? Um, in my opinion, it shouldn't. I think you should still be. You know, you should still want to play for your country. I think it's it's a massive honour, but with the way football's going, I think it's completely different now that, you know, players just take it for granted and they think, oh, well, you know, if I don't get a, a cap this time, I'll get it next time. And there's always some the, the thing about, you know, if you never get a cap, you've got a granddad that lived in, you know, flipping Ghana for two two years and it's like, oh, well, I can qualify for Ghana or something like that or, <laughs> or Scotland or something like that, you know. You see Matt Ritchie at Newcastle. He plays for Scotland's national team, and he speaks he speaks, you know, like a like a Cockney. He's he's a southern southern lad, but he's he's Scottish. And then there's mm. loads of situations like that, and it's it does it grates on you a little bit, especially when you see people, you know, um, pulling out on a Thursday and playing on a Sunday with a, a you know in brackets groin strain kind of thing. So I think just think that's the way football's going. It's 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 a bit disappointing, um, but. Football's not what it used to be internationally, and, and probably as you know, you, you could go back further and apply that to everything. I don't think football's ever what it used to be in terms of what it means to players. There's there's a lot of money. There's a lot of yeah. um, different things going on in football now, where you know players' motivations are, are more sort of selfish and, and more you know about them and, and self centered. But that's just the way it is. I think. Yeah, well, that's it, Marley, because they don't get paid as much when they play for England as they do for their clubs. And I know they get that money on top of what they mm. get paid for their clubs, but it just almost You shouldn't seem... get paid for playing for your country, should you, really? If you think about yeah, it. I, yeah, I mean, I, that's I a, thought you that... didn't. I thought it was a charity donation or something uh, well, like for an international you, appearance. You now. do get paid, and then you can donate it to charity. I think it's all a little bit convoluted in the way that it's done. But if I asked you both this... Would you rather score for West Ham United and Newcastle United, the winner in a Premier League game, or would you rather score for England at a World Cup? For me, I'd rather score for Pompey in a league game any day of the week than I would for England. I'm club over country, yeah. as you say, Jim. Yeah. I don't Completely. know what you boys feel, but I mean, that just kind of, that kind yeah, of I'd, hammers it home for me. I'd probably agree, just because the way I think of it, like, do you remember um, uh, Dave Nugent for England? And he scored one goal in one game <laughs> for England, and he's never he's never played since. It was a tap in that he that he, he robbed on the line from Jermaine Defoe's shot, and it's it almost <laughs> it's almost like you know it's probably the most proud thing of his of his career scoring for England. But the way he did it, and it's it's almost yeah, it's like you say, like it's not what it used to be, and that's that's sad to be honest. That that is sad. I don't know whether that comes from the players not caring, whether that comes from the fan. Like one, does one feed the other? Is it the the lack of 
maybe perceived passion from the players that then feeds into the lack of interest and perceived passion from the fans? Is it the lack of success at international level? Because certainly as a West Ham fan, we haven't, we haven't had any success <laughs> at club level either. Do you know what I think it is? Is I think football's unique from other sports in that international football is not the pinnacle of the game, as Marley points out. Club football at the highest level is the pinnacle of the game. So if you look at sports other sports in this country like cricket for example international cricket is the pinnacle of the game rugby yeah. the six nations the world cup things like that are the pinnacle of uh, of rugby union um and, and you look at these sports around around the world um these other team sports where international team sports bar in america are the biggest um kind of draw in their respective fields so i mean you're talking about international football people only care when the world cup's on because there isn't anything else on and there's a four-year build-up to it and mm-hmm. the euros are only really relevant to, to to people um in europe obviously as the name denotes so i mean i just think that the way that the premier league's exploded with tv revenue and the way that the appetite for football has just grown exponentially where you see these clubs on tv every week you see these players scoring screamers I think that that has kind of deviated the focus away from the international stage and to the club stage. Um, And people always talk about famous World Cups. Do you remember Brazil in 1970, Maradona 86? Um, When was the last time you go, oh, do you remember? I mean, probably France 98, maybe even before that. I mean, I, I, I grew up in an era where France 98 was kind of my first real World Cup. And, you know, I don't think back, oh, remember that Brazil 02 team? You kind of remember moments of players. You remember Ronaldinho lobbing David Seaman. That's what I remember from that World Cup. I don't remember a great international team. I don't remember Italy 06. I remember Zidane headbutting Materazzi. Um, So, you know, they're the sort of things that I mean. You know, you kind of go back years and you think, oh, yeah, great. Those old World Cups, they've got so many memories, so many big teams that you think about how great they were. But now... We talk more about the Invincibles of 2004 than that Brazil side of All-Stars that won the World Cup two years prior to that. So I think that's the kind of the way it's gone. To be fair, I do remember England in the 2014 World Cup, but I remember that purely for the fact that I was in Brazil and England actually got home before me. <laughs> <laughs> during that World <laughs> Cup which was a pretty <laughs> impressive feat um, we've got slightly off topic here so I'm going to wrap it up and move on because I think you're I think it's spot on it's really strange the difference in the way the Phil Foden and Mason Greenwood situation was handled to this current situation and there are differences there and one could be perceived as the other but fundamentally it's breaking the COVID rules and the important part about that is footballers are supposed to be role models and if they're breaking the rules that's going to almost normalise other people breaking the rules so it could just be time that we finally accept the fact that footballers aren't role models they're never going to be role models they're very wealthy young people who feel like they can do what they want so maybe they shouldn't be put on the pedestal that sometimes they are so we're going to leave England there and we're going to move on to the next bit of the podcast which is all about your questions and our attempts to answer them you can get your questions in for the AQA section of the podcast anytime you like through the week via our social media you can do that at sports-social.co.uk all the details are there and we'll do the AQAs we'll answer your questions next on the podcast listen to the latest Premier League news updates and match reports now just ask Open Sports Social Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. 
Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. Before we get into your questions on the AQA section of the podcast, I just want to read a review that we've had in via iTunes. From the United States, this one comes. And if you want to leave us a review, however you listen to podcasts, please do so. Tell us how much you like the podcast, which bits you like, or just have a go at someone on the show. Anything's fine. Just make sure you leave us a four or five star review and you might get a shout out on the podcast. This one comes from Dan Saint and he says, almost amazing. And he's gone for a four star review. So he says, world class edutainment for everyday listening. Loving the use of the word edutainment. Great cast and diverse perspectives big tick there i'll change this to a five star review on two conditions so these are the two conditions we've got to adhere to to in order to get a five star review from dan he says number one bring back the cliche bell (laughs) there's a story behind that (laughs) i could do that you know we're no longer in the uh, in the studio together so we don't have the cliche bell to hand all the time I don't even know where it is, actually. Have you got it, Niall? Is it yours? Is it in your I possession? I, I, don't have it, I don't have it in my possession, but I think I know where it is. And also, with the magic of podcast editing these days, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I might be able to add in post-production a cliche bell, but it's a lot of effort. I'm not going to yeah. lie. It's a lot of effort. So <laughs> depending on what the other permutation is to get a five-star review, I might consider adding, adding it back in. To be honest, the other one I think is completely out of the question. He says, could Steve actually speak about any club for five minutes without mentioning Liverpool? <laughs> Which, I mean... Oh, no, that's... <laughs> <then>. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So uh, thanks for the feedback, Dan, in Boston. Uh, we appreciate it. Unfortunately, I'm not sure we're going to be Cheers, able Dan. to reach that five-star review yet. But keep your reviews coming, however you listen to podcasts. We love reading them, love hearing what you think of the shows so let's get on to the aqa section of the podcasts your questions answer these will come in all via instagram this week and the first one comes in from tom dunk who says do you think everton can stay consistent with their good form for the first four games or do you think this is a false dawn and they'll finish somewhere between seventh and ten like they always do Undoubtedly a great start for Everton. I think we'd all concede the fact they have done really well in the first four four games. They're top of the league at the moment. But at the same time, let's caveat that slightly by saying so far in the league, they've played Brighton, Crystal Palace, West Brom, and obviously they had the win against Spurs on the opening day of the season. So is this just... Well, is this, as Tom says, Marley, is it a false dawn? Do you know what? In any any normal season, I'd be saying, yeah, it's probably a false dawn, this... Um, Everton have made good starts before, uh, you know, years and years ago, and they've never sort of had the the consistency and the the talent to sort of flesh it out into a sort of real having having a go at everything. But this year, you've got to ask one thing that you know I say they've done this before, but they've never done it with such a good coach. And Ancelotti is undoubtedly a good coach and they've got very, very good players and they've, they've got a very solid team. If, if Calvert-Lewin keeps scoring goals, I honestly don't know where they could end up because you know this season's already proved to be crazy. There's goals everywhere. Um, you know, Man United getting smashed 6-1 by Spurs. Everton beat Spurs 1-0. Villa with a crazy result against, um, against Liverpool, smashing them 7-2. I think there's going to be a lot of... Um, a lot of weird scoreline, uh, score lines this season, so it's going to be uh, a weird one. I wouldn't be surprised to see them, you know, hang on and finish in the top four the way they've started. With they do look solid. I think once they sort out the defence, um, which does need a little bit of work, 
then I think they you know they could they could easily crack that top six because if you look at the state of Man United right now, they're nowhere near what you'd what you'd expect. Um, Chelsea have got to get their new signings gelling pretty quickly, um, and then you've got Arsenal who, who look good and Man City look all right, and then Liverpool haven't strengthened probably as much as they wanted to this summer, even though they've got a couple of good good signings. But that derby next week at uh, Liverpool Everton probably be the best one in years and there's no bloody fans there to watch it so that's going to be a bit of a nightmare for them but that'll be a great game next week and that'll be a massive test of of where Everton are in terms of uh, how far they can go this season with that uh, with that squad and that start I mean that is the first real test for Liverpool uh, for Everton playing Liverpool despite the result against Aston Villa that could even make it a bit more dangerous for Everton because Liverpool are going to be a wounded animal. They're going to really want to get back on track after that embarrassing defeat to Aston Villa last weekend. The problem, I suppose, for Everton is that injuries are going to creep in inevitably. They already have crept in now. Richarlison went off at the weekend. Allen's out. Gomez is out still as well. So if the new signings that have made such a difference slowly drop off, then they're going to be exactly back to where they were last season. Yeah, I suppose you could say that. And I think Marley's right to point the fingers at the 17th of October, which is the first Merseyside derby of the season, because I think this is Everton going into that game the most confident they've ever been. And I think even with those injuries, as you mentioned, Jim, they'll still be confident because of the way they've started. They've got an extra dynamic now with Ancelotti as their manager. Everything feels like it's heading in the right direction at Everton for the first time in a long time. Now, when Ronald Koeman first arrived at Everton, you kind of felt that there was a bit of a momentum shift there and then it started to fall away. Marco Silva fell by the wayside as well. I mean, they don't even want to think back to the Sam Allardyce days at Goodison Park. I'm sure no fan of any Premier League side wants to think back to the Sam Allardyce days unless you're probably a Bolton supporter or something. But certainly... I feel that Everton do have a good chance. I've mentioned this derby, the Merseyside derby on the podcast before, as being more like the Barcelona derby, Barcelona versus Espanyol, than any other derby I can think of in Europe. But I feel that that's changed now because even though they've not beaten Liverpool for 10 years, you do feel like now is the best chance they're going to have to do it. And you mentioned Liverpool being a wounded animal. You know, Everton will want to take advantage of that. My only concern for Everton in terms of keeping the consistency up is the fact that they've really struggled to keep clean sheets in the Premier League so far. Um, They've scored bags of goals, but if you go back to the way that uh, the season began for them, they managed to beat Tottenham 1-0, so that was the first clean sheet, but the only other clean sheets they've kept um, was, was against Salford City in the second round of the Carabao Cup and that was you know their Salford League 2 side they conceded two to West Brom and West Brom even had a man sent off they conceded two to Fleetwood Town they conceded to Crystal Palace they conceded to West Ham they conceded two to Brighton so even though they're winning these games 4-1 4-2 5-2 they're still conceding goals now will they score as many goals against their rivals Liverpool probably not but they can't afford to be as leaky at the back as they have been now I'm not saying that Everton defensively have been shambolic that's not the case at all albeit Brighton's first goal in their game at the weekend was pretty shocking and I think Yerry Mina's had a bit of a stinker personally but certainly they need to tighten up at the back and you know you kind of get this stigma with Ancelotti as an Italian manager someone who's managed in Serie A for years that defensively he's a pretty solid coach um It's kind of a bit of a a, a cliche, I suppose, or a stereotype of Italian managers that they're good defensively. But even though Everton fans will be really pleased with the attacking momentum and the way that Everton have played going forward, 
you look at their form at the back, they need more zeros in that goals against column. They've conceded in pretty much every game so far by that opening day of the season. Um, so yeah, they really do need to kind of tighten things up at the back. And if they can do that, uh, maybe the signing of Ben Godfrey might be the kind of the, the extra bit of reinforcement they need. But if they can do that and really squeeze that defence and make it a little bit tighter, who's to say that they won't finish a little bit higher than what people are expecting? I mean, between 7th and 10th feels like it's still probably going to be that because even over the last couple of seasons, Everton have finished sort of lower mid-table or even just, you know, generally mid-table. So I just think that this is a really good start for Everton, a good platform. They need to build on it. If they can keep the players fit, like you say, Jim, tighten up at the back, then who's to say they can't make a tilt for the top six? Certainly a test of what Everton can do for the rest of the season and they've made the start that they would have hoped they were going to make. Next question comes from Oscar Grant, who says... There's a very uh, barbed question, this. He says, why do you think Guardiola's <laughs> teams struggle with defending despite spending $1 billion on them? I mean, <laughs> I mean he has spent a load of money on his defence, Guardiola, and it's not quite worked. I was looking at this before we came on the show, and I thought I'd list some of the defenders that they've bought in over the last four years since Guardiola's been at the club and I don't think this is an exhaustive list either so Joe Cancelo 65 million euros Angelino 12 million euros Laporte came in at 65 million euros Benjamin Mendy 57 million euros Carl Walker 51 million euros Daniello 30 million euros John Stones 55 million uh, Zinchenko who I'm going to class for the sake of this as a defender uh, in for 2 million that was probably the best deal out of the lot Ruben Diaz has just joined the club as well when you look at that list it's very difficult difficult to pick anyone apart from maybe Laporte and Kyle Walker who have been out and out successes now. Yeah I suppose so and I think Walker yeah as you mentioned and Laporte are probably the pick of the two. What City do is they tend to spend between 50 and 60 million on their defenders. Now in the current climate where you see in the likes of David Luiz arriving back at Chelsea from PSG for 50 million five or six years ago now you do think well maybe that's not too bad whereas you know you see Manchester United paying 80 million Liverpool play, paying 75 million for their defenders. City have kind of plumped around the 50 to 65 million pound mark. And I think Ruben Diaz is, is he not their record signing at Manchester City? I think he might be. So I think that's the key. I think the key is the fact that they've spent 50 million more often than not on new defenders. Unfortunately for them, it, it hasn't worked to the way that people would have wanted it to. But if you think about whether Walker's done a bad job or Laporte's done a bad job, that's not really the case. Angelino for 12 million euros is an absolute pittance for any club now, especially a top club like Manchester City, one with money in the bank. And that was on a buyback clause. As you say, Zinchenko for 2 million, that's a decent deal. João Cancelo has played for Juventus and played at the top level and played in the Champions League. So I still feel that there's more to come from him. It's his first season just gone in English football. So still perhaps a little bit time to adapt. Benjamin Mendy, he's not really delivered consistently enough. He's had real torrid time with injuries, so you could even pinpoint the fact he's been poor on his injury record. But, you know, Manchester City need to get this Ruben Diaz signing right. You know, they've brought him in. He needs to come in and hit the ground running. He needs to come in and perform because before now, the glue to that defensive unit was Vincent Kompany. And even though he didn't play as regularly in the later stages of his City career, he was always in and amongst it in training and really offering that experience and that understanding of where the club came mm. from to really glue that defensive unit together. Now, the problem is, is when you're 
a side with a lot of possession of the ball, it's easy to kind of switch off at the back and forget your basic defensive duties. Now, I'm not sure that's what's been happening this season, but certainly there's an argument that I've seen kind of laid down that Manchester City enjoy so much of the ball that they almost kind of daydream through games sometimes and expect themselves to kind of, you know, not really have much to do at the back. And then all of a sudden there's a counter attack and they, they, they don't know what's happened. They've switched off for a second and then the ball's in the back of their net. So, I'm not sure whether that's something that can be coached. Concentration is so important when you're a defender, which is why you see defenders' stocks going up or down so dramatically, depending on how rash they are and their concentration levels. I use David Luiz as another example. You know, I think he's actually an all right player, but his concentration levels are shocking, which then in turn makes him not an all right player. Because even though he's got all the technical ability you can want for a defender, he's strong, he's fast, he's got a great range of passing, he's got good vision, he can strike the ball from long range. But his concentration levels are shocking. So, you know, that kind of lowers his stock as a defender, which is why no one really wanted to sign him, bar Arsenal. Um, so, yeah, it's just one of those things for, for Manchester City where they've got this kind of tag, this stigma, this monkey on their back of spending so much money on defenders. And that's a fact, by the way. So I don't like when Manchester City fans come out and say, yeah, but this has happened in net spend. There is a fact there. One billion pounds spent on defenders. That's a lot of money. That's a real lot of money. So... Maybe it's Cheeky Bagheristan not getting the signings right. Maybe it's unfortunate. There are reasons for each player, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, struggling with defending is not something that we've really attributed to Manchester City or even Guardiola teams over the years. But Barcelona, when he was there, had a really tough defence. Bayern Munich, the same. Manchester City, it's it's not quite been as been the same. Maybe because the Premier League is a tougher league, arguably, than the Bundesliga and La Liga. So... Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on exactly why, but certainly it's a stigma and a tag that Manchester City need to shake. And the best way to do that is if they stop conceding goals mm. and Ruben Diaz, who's just come in, hits the ground running. I missed Nathan Ake off my list earlier as well, who's another £50 million defender who looks like he won't be first choice for Pep Guardiola either going into this season. Why is it then, Marley? Have you got a theory here? Because I look at it and go, these are good players. Like, like Niles says, Cancelo played for Juventus he played at the highest level Mendy was a good player or seemingly a good player before he joined Manchester City is it just that Pep Guardiola wants something so specific and so difficult for his defenders to do that there's only a very small amount that can actually reach the standard that he requires what's the thing he wants them to do just defend (laughs) (laughs) clear the ball stick it in Um, Rose Ed to be honest Jim if I knew the answer to the question of how do I make Man City's defence you know what I I would probably be in in coaching and have a have a, a, a staggering salary at Man City, but I don't. Um, so basically, the short answer is I don't know. But the long answer, I don't know. Maybe if I just think, yeah, <laughs> that's the same answer. <laughs> it's, it's basically I don't know with a few more words coming after it, but um, I just I just think with Man City, you know, when they want a new defender. And this happens to to all top clubs. Uh, when they want a defender, everybody knows they want a defender. Everybody from, you know, Real Madrid to, to you know, the bloke in the shop, down the down the pub or anything like that, they all know that Man City are in for a defender. So when you approach a club and say, "Hey, we're interested in this guy," they're gonna be like, "Well, sixty million or, you know, don't uh, don't come, don't send the email." So it's one of them. It's yeah. it's similar with Man United. Um, and Liverpool this year, you know, Liverpool ended up paying forty million for Jota. He only scored six or seven goals last season. He wasn't, 
he wasn't sort of a what you would call a, a bargain at forty million. So it's it's a similar thing. I think you know you look at the the business they've done. They've they activate um, release clauses a fair bit. Uh, if you look at uh, Laporte, he was was it sixty seven million or something like that because that that was the price similar to what Arsenal have done with with Thomas Partey. That's the price. There is no negotiation with that. So you know you're going to get him for that. You you kind of cut out the club and the negotiation tactics a bit more because if you'd went up to to um, to Bilbao and said right we want Emery Laporte, they'd be like right well eighty million please, and they'd be like well we do, we don't have that, and it would have gone on for months and months and. They couldn't. They might not have got him. So I just think that happens quite a lot, and it's always resulted in in one of two things, and that's either walking away or um, giving in and, and paying over the odds. And then obviously there's never any any um, guarantees over anything in football. Like you, you never know that a player is going to come in and, and do exactly what you expected of him, because there's there's a million different things that goes into a transfer. There's you know the player settling in England, he's moving his family over. He's playing a slightly different position, playing a slightly different uh, tactical sort of philosophy kind of thing, like short passing. Pep's way is is very demanding. Blah blah blah. There's loads of things that go into it, so there's never any guarantees. Um, and I just think Man City have, have got a little bit like that in in recent years. If something doesn't go well, then the solution is to buy, and it always has been. That's what every every club does. It just Man City do it on a different uh, a different level because they've got mm-hmm. the money that that they need. I mean, you look at what they did this summer. Koulibaly was ninety million. They were like, no, well, we don't want to spend that much. And then it looked like they were closing in on on Kounde from Sevilla, and they wanted seventy million. And the guys the guys had one good season in Spain for God's sake. So they went right. If we're going to spend a lot of money, we're going to go and do it on Ruben Diaz because. At least Benfica are willing sellers. So then they went to him and they obviously put Otamendi in the deal, uh, in it well in a separate deal. But they used him as kind of a sweetener and and it worked like that. So if, you know Diaz might be a great player. He might be another. He might be another flop. But Pep Guardiola, I don't think has ever really um, built a defense from scratch like he like he had to at Man City. I think if you think back to um, to Barcelona, he had Puyol and Pique already there. Dani Alves. I think was already there when he arrived, um, and then the, the left back. I think they, I think they signed Jordi Alba run to him, so it was kind of like one position, and they just went and got the best left back in Spain that didn't play for Barcelona already, and they went and got um, Alba from Celta, um, from Valencia. So that's that's it's it's a completely different thing, especially in England where everything's a bit more physical. You have to go and sign a different type of player, but. You know, we'll, we'll see if he can do it, um, Guardiola. But as he's proved before, he's still got squad, um, squads good enough to win the league and to win the league at a canter. So it's not like he's uh, he's a poor manager because he he spends money. Everybody, every manager would do that if they had the the, the sort of blank checkbook that that Man City have. So I don't think he can be blamed for for doing that. You're right. That was a very long way to say you don't know. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> Right, we'll do one more question. We'll try and squeeze this one in. So quick answers on this one, please. It's from Mike Rotter, who says, could players take it upon themselves to purposely miss penalties that are awarded for stupid handballs? There's been a lot of controversy around the handball rules for this season. So should players step up and deliberately blaze it over the bar? I guess we have seen occasions like this 
sporadically before. I'm thinking of Bielsa at Leeds, who last season ordered his players to concede a goal after, I can't remember exactly what the decision was, but there was something he didn't agree with that went in favour of his team. So he, oh, it was against Middlesbrough, wasn't it? He um, demanded that they conceded a goal. No, it was Aston Villa. Okay, there you go. So would that kind of thing work on a mass basis? If every Premier League player went, right, if there's a handball decision that isn't right, we're going to deliberately miss the penalty. No. No, it won't. It won't. Because... I can see what Mike is getting at here because, you know, in the spirit of the game, if you want one way to change the rules quickly, that's to bring the game into disrepute and players threatening to score own goals. Like I think William Gallas did it once, didn't he? When he was playing for Chelsea, threatened to score an own goal unless he got the transfer he wanted to Arsenal. Um, Players threatening to score own goals, missing penalties deliberately. Now, For instance, if a player dives in the box and gets awarded a penalty and he stands straight back up because he's tripped or whatever and the referee gives it and therefore the player decides to miss out of the spirit of the game, that's understandable. But you need to trust those people in the VAR truck to make the right decision. Now, the players on the pitch can't see the decisions that are being made in the VAR truck. They can only see the outcome on the big screens where it says VAR awards a penalty. So it would be massively unprofessional for players who are paid big money to get results for their football clubs to purposefully miss penalties. Now, I can see the point that Mike is getting at because if Mm. people do start missing penalties deliberately, blazing it over, putting it wide or whatever, then that will bring about a rule change almost immediately because, as I said before, it will bring the game into disrepute. It will completely ruin people's enjoyment of the game. Now, the point of football is, and I think we've kind of lost focus of it, the point of football is sometimes you get this drama, sometimes you get these dodgy results, and it kind of makes for the excitement of the game. You think, oh, well, this would have been all right if we didn't get that dodgy penalty decision or whatever. Um, and I understand last weekend the kind of uh, the, the kind of talk around handball has ramped up a couple of notches, rightly so, but missing penalties on purpose... I can't see that ever happening just purely because, as I said before, the players are professionals. They're paid big money. And, you know, for instance, if it was a derby game and it was the last minute of West Ham against Millwall and, you know, a decision gets given for West Ham, Jim, it's a handball. Do you really think Mark Noble's going to smash that ball over the bar against Millwall? No, it's not going to happen, is it? It's just not going to happen. So I can see what Mike's getting at. I really understand his point where, you know, if it's stupid, then maybe, yeah, Obviously, you might want to think about a way in which you can impact a rule change very, very quickly. And at the moment, the handball's decision rule is stupid. But missing penalties deliberately, I don't think is the way to go. I guess the problem would be, Marley, the same problem that we face with the handball rule at the moment is that, I mean, the main issue for me is they've tried to add in rules about handball that take it away from being an objective thing. And handball is an objective thing. You have to decide whether there's intent there so you'd need a consensus from all 11 players on one side I mean this is this is making it quite basic but you'd still need a consensus from the 11 players on the pitch and the manager before you decided to miss the penalty so that it it, it still faces the same challenge as any prospective rule change yeah um like you say everyone's got to be in agreement and even you know in the past you mentioned the, the Leeds game earlier on and even when that happened against um, Aston Villa on the, so I think it was the last day of the season before the playoffs were were settled, um, Bielsa ordered Leeds to to allow Villa to score a goal, and Pontus Janssen, the Leeds defender, didn't 
didn't agree with it, so tried to tackle the the guy. He nearly ended up with a fight on fight in his own with his own <laughs> teammates. Right. So it's that just proves kind of you know that, that it's hard to to have a, a full agreement on that. So I think it's I I get the feeling that most clubs are pushing for this rule to be changed. I think you know a lot of managers have said that if they benefited from the handball that they that the opposition did um you know if it went the other way they they wouldn't be happy like Steve Bruce said against uh, for Newcastle against Spurs he'd be gutted if if that Eric Dyer handball um decision had been given in favor of uh, against his team sorry and and Roy Hodgson was this, was similar with with his uh, criticisms last time Crystal Palace played so it just it kind of sums up that of where we're going with this handball rule. I think there's there's um, pressure from managers and clubs on the league to change the rule and to not fall in line with Europe because you know it's a different league. So why can't you make your own decisions? So I think if that pressure keeps up, I think eventually they will get a decision out of the league and they'll say, okay, right, we've we've taken on board your feedback and we'll change the rule. But until then, I think there's going to be a lot of dodgy penalties. Um, I can't mm. see players deliberately missing things purely because there's so much money in the game and stuff now that if you score a goal and you end up finishing one place higher at the end of the season, that that miss or that goal is worth, I think it's like one and a half million pound a place or something like that. So there's so much money involved. There's goal bonuses. <laughs> the guys who were um, taking the penalty, for example, if a striker's on a, an eight grand goal bonus, he's going to think... It, is this is this worth me missing just for you know just to try and be a sort of uh, hero for for fair play kind of thing? So there's, there's there's loads of things that go into it, but I can't see it ever happening that you'll start people will start deliberately missing penalties. So there you go. There's your answer on that one, Mike. And that concludes the AQA section of today's podcast. We'll do it again next Wednesday. So if you've got a question for me or the boys, you can get us via social media at the Sports Social on Twitter, Sports Social Official on Instagram, or just search Sports Social and find our Facebook page. Next, it's the Floodlight Focus. I've been looking forward to this one. We're going to be talking West Ham with XWHU employee. That's next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football Social Daily from Sport Social. Find us on Facebook. Search Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily and it's the floodlight focus today that I have been waiting for for a few weeks because it means I get to talk about West Ham for a little bit more than I'm usually allowed because our floodlight focus is focusing on events in East London and I'm joined by West Ham blogger, ITK and podcaster with the West Ham Way podcast, XWHU employee. How you doing, mate? I'm very well, mate. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm really good, sir. Well... All things considered, really good because I'm talking to you straight off the back of, as a West Ham fan, a very, very disappointing transfer window. You're at the sharp end of this stuff because on Twitter, you're sort of seen as the news source, the person that breaks the latest transfer gossip. So you get a real idea of how fans are feeling. What is the mood amongst the West Ham faithful at the moment? 
I think the West Ham fans are disappointed with the window, like you said, because, you know, we've we've only bought one right back um, and that was forced upon us when mm. um, Fredericks got injured um, and we haven't signed anyone else. Uh, we've been, you know, we sold Dean Garner because we were told we had to sell players to raise money to buy players. Um, and so we sold an academy prospect, which was very popular, not just with the fans, but with um, the players as well. As you saw from Mark Noble and others tweeting, um, and then that money was promised to be reinvested and it hasn't been now I obviously the championship window is still open so it could get reinvested there but it's a shame to see us linked with so many players particularly centre-backs and then for none of them to actually you know come come to the player joining us then yeah I think the fans are generally quite disappointed Do you think there was ever genuine intention from the board because as you say the, the club were linked with a hundred different centre-backs right across Europe over the last few days of the window. And it seems to me that the, the general consensus from a lot of West Ham fans is there was no true intention of ever reinvesting that Dean Garner money in the playing squad fully and bringing in that next level player that we have been promised for so long. Um, it's, it's a difficult one. I think, you know, they, they did want to invest the money. They did want to bring in a centre-back. But the problem with West Ham is that we never really have any clear strategy. So, mm. you know, usually a club would focus on maybe one, two three possibly targets for the same position and then do all they can to make at least one of those come in whereas with us we seem to under offer for a player and then get rejected and do the same and do the same and do the same and do the same and hope <laughs> that eventually one of these clubs will just like you know think, oh, feel sorry for us maybe and give us a decent deal but it's that's obviously not how it works and I think had a, had one of these defenders we'd bid for been suddenly given to us at a lower price it might have happened but unfortunately we're always trying to bargain hunt and 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 it just doesn't work now and I, I think we will sign some championship players if we don't sign any then that's a real real testament to the ambition of the board that you know it'll be a real example that they can't take this club further I mean I think most fans unfortunately for them feel that anyway but I think if we don't sign anyone and like I said on the back of the Dean Garner episode you know we've also released Jack Wilshire £100,000 a week with uh, Anderson's got on loan which is another massive wage off our off our bill plus selling a Jetty Hugel so there are others um, I think it'd just be massively disappointing and you know we clearly do need a centre-back we clearly need other players because whilst we're performing really well on the back of the last two Premier League games the squad is so thin now that it would be such a shame to to not you know give a few more players to it to really try and achieve something for once I want to talk more about Jack Wilshire's release in just a second and the comments he made uh, on social media when he left the club but you mentioned the board and the the way fans feel about the board at the moment whether they can take the club any further it feels like it's been getting toxic for a few years now. And we saw the protest against Burnley. Was it season before last? Mm. And there seems to be a slight improvement after that with the bringing in of Pellegrini and the players that he brought into the club. Obviously, that didn't quite work. But now, after that two steps forward, it seems like there's been 10 steps back. And there's a real toxic atmosphere, particularly directed towards David Sullivan at the moment. 
Mm, yeah, that's very true. I mean, I think that the, there was always going to be this problem when you took West Ham away from Upton Park, whoever the owners were, you know, whilst most fans at the time backed the move because we thought it, we, we sort of built into the dream that we'd have this, you know, brand new stadium. Um, we would then have a playing um playing staff to uh, give us the world-class mm. team that Karen Brady said and unfortunately both the stadium and the team have been far from what, what was promised now you know you look at uh, Manchester City for example you know they moved into a brand new stadium and look how successful that's been for them um, and then obviously I know they've got a much wealthier owner than we have but they've managed to move on to that next level um, we just don't seem to have made any progress I mean if anything if you compare to how we used to perform at Upton Park to how we perform now, you'd probably say that we've regressed. And, you know, to take us away from our home with all these promises and then ultimately to be worse than what we were, it's, that's why there's so much resentment. And I think you've got that as the core of the resentment, but then you've also got um, the fact that, you know, there's other things along the way, like the PR at times, the, the other promises that are given that don't ever amount to anything, the the treatment of certain players or certain ex-players and there's just yeah really toxic feeling towards towards the owners and it you know it's sad really because it's not it's not that as enjoyable as it used to be to support West Ham. <laughs> it really isn't. And the thing is, like, not, like I said, we're not, you know, we're not glory fans, you know, since I've been alive. And I feel like an old man now. West Ham <laughs> haven't won anything. So, you know, we can't be, we can't be glory fans. Um, so it's not that that we support West Ham for, but we support the, for the family feel, you know, mm. perhaps the style of football, that kind of, you know, against the odds attitude. Um, there's that certain core characteristics that make up what being a West Ham fan is. And we seem to have really lost our identity you know we've lost our ground our badge has changed you know our style of football is a bit very variant you know there's no real identity now and I think that's the biggest problem there seems to be some very well-timed rumors surfacing again uh, as the transfer window closed pretty much well the, the the Premier League and international transfer window as you said the championship window still open for a little time about potential takeovers and a party in the US who are reigniting their interest in the club. Suggestions that David Sullivan is trying to reduce running costs, hence the offloading of players like Felipe Anderson in order to bring wage bills down to jack up the price of the club. Do you believe any of these rumours? Is there any truth in them at all? Or is it just just that, well-timed rumours? Um, I think it's probably a combination of the two. I think there are some interested parties out there. I mean, you would hope so. We're a Premier League team with, a, a, I guess, a, a, a big capacity stadium in London. So there are features that would make us attracted to investors. Mm. And, I, and I am aware of, I guess, tentative inquiries is probably the best way to word it, where David Sullivan has had email exchanges with um, consortiums across um, the world. But yes, mm. in America as one. Uh, and I think there probably is interest from afar, but again, I think this is a well-timed um, announcement straight after the window. You know, the announcement is that we weren't buying players, like you said, we to save on costs. 
but that they announced that after the close of the window so that they could basically say that you know if we'd signed a player for 30 million the day before would that would that have rumor yeah. have came out the next day i question that i also question why this is just a twitter story really it's been in one paper i think the whole time it's never made its way to any of um to the other papers not made it onto sky even though jim white appears to be best friends with david <laughs> sullivan um you know it's not made it onto any mains stream or um you know publication as such and when i've asked various people connected and i've even asked the chairman david sullivan himself directly do you know anything about these takeovers and he says it's absolute uh, i'm not sure if we can swear or not so i won't absolute rubbish and uh, and uh, and he and and he says that now people are saying to me oh yeah he signed a non-disclosure form etc etc but i don't mean to sound like i'm blowing my own trumpet here but there's been non-disclosure forms signed repeatedly since i've been inverted commas xwhu employee and that's not stopped me finding out information before um so i don't see why it would now so as you said in the sort of question i think it i think it is well timed i think it's probably hopefully time because i think that's probably what everyone wants to happen there may be some outside interest in america in fact i know there is but any concrete offer i don't think has happened you know there's talk it's going to happen by january we're in october now it's going to have to go very very quickly for that to happen um by january and so i'm very skeptical is probably the diplomatic way to put it well i've seen how complicated this stuff is with other premier league clubs not least uh, newcastle uh, mm. on jack wilshire obviously he's been released by the club now i was amazed to see the club paying off 80 percent of his wages to to see him off the off the uh, playing staff what did you make of his statement on social media afterwards where he claimed pretty much that he'd been fit for the entire time it was West Ham and it was completely unbeknownst to him why he wasn't making the first team squad I was very yeah I was quite surprised by that to be honest with you because you know then there's been a whole propaganda campaign going by David Moyes by the chairman by various outlets to say surgeons um, <laughs> yeah surgeons yeah exactly yeah and to pretend that he's pretend that he's injured when he's not and 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 the thing is like you he why did he not say that before you know he's again he said it after he's been released if if he reckons he's been fit for eight months why why has he not put a tweet out and said you know really disappointed not to be selected this week you know gonna work hard hopefully i'll get in the team next week that type of thing you know he's waited mm. until he's left when he needs a new club you know most clubs that are gonna be looking at jack wilshire are gonna be thinking he hasn't been fit since you know since he was very young when he was at arsenal yeah, yeah. you know he hasn't been fit for at least five or six years so that's why West Ham have paid such a big amount of money to release him um, and if he goes out and goes yeah I haven't been fit for about four or five years who's going to sign him you know he's 28 now I think so he needs to basically be showing people that he is fit I think it, I think it was Owen Hargreaves from memory when he was released by Man United I seem to remember him did, doing a video which was him like yeah, you know right. doing show sprints and gym work and things like that to show that he was fit and then he retired about a month later or whatever it was for injury and I think as much as I you know the criticism at the the manager and the board is justified at times I would be very surprised if he has been fit for this long particularly when we were you know choosing to play the likes of I don't know Carlos Sanchez and others ahead of him you know I think, I think no one would there'd be no other reason for it really I think he 
maybe just trying to self-promote himself. I, I like Jack Wilshere. He's a lovely lad. He's a good. He's a. He was a great footballer, but unfortunately, I do think injuries have kind mm. of put his career basically almost over in some just, respects. Just never quite happened for him. Let's let's finish on a positive because there are some positives recently. And that's been in the performances on the pitch. I mean, West Ham don't have a terrible first 11. That is the saving grace. And there's been two decent wins, one against Wolves, one against Leicester. Seven goals scored, none conceded. It must give you some hope that this season won't be a total disaster. It does. I mean, I've been absolutely delighted with the performances. I, I thought the performance against Leicester was absolutely superb, as it was against Wolves. But obviously, Leicester uh, were flying. We were away from home and so on. The, the performance against Leicester was, was, was everything that I would want it to be. I thought every single player played well. We counterattacked superbly. We looked in total control of the game. And you're right, the first 11 is very, very strong. And I think... If we get our tactics right, which we seem to have finally done by playing five at five at the back or wing backs, whatever you want to call it, I think we've finally got the tactic that suits us. Yeah. Uh, we've got a forward that seems to score regularly now, um, albeit a winger come right back, come forward that seems to <laughs> seems to score regularly now, um, and I think that's crucial. Uh, we've kept hold of Declan Rice, which is another massive for this transfer window. You know, we, we're saying it's doom and gloom, but keeping hold of him is is significantly positive. Um, and if we can play like that against Leicester and Wolves, we can. We need to just get that word that's eluded us for so long, and that's consistency. If we can keep that going, I think we'll 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 achieve well this year. But again, with West Ham, you never know. We played terribly against Newcastle the first game of the season, then have played really well in these two games. Who knows what the next game holds? It that's the the roller coaster of being a West Ham fan, unfortunately. Unfortunately, depends which way you look at it. <laughs> X, it's a pleasure to speak to you as always. Good luck for the season. Obviously, people can find you on Twitter if they want to get the latest West Ham news and occasionally Chelsea news at yep. XWHU employee. And where can they find the West Ham Way podcast, which uh, you release on a weekly basis? Yeah, it's um, on most uh, podcast um, mediums, I guess. So like um, iTunes and uh, Spotify and places like that. You just search for the West Ham Way podcast and uh, and there it is. And as you say, it's weekly. It comes out every Thursday morning. And um, yeah, if you if you uh, it's not just for West Ham fans. Obviously, most of the content is West Ham, <laughs> but we but we do like to think that we can entertain fans of other clubs too. Top man, X. Great to chat to you. You too, mate. Right, that is it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thank you very much, Marley. Thank you. Thank you very much, Niall. Go and find that bell. <laughs> I've got a lot of editing to do, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, you've got a lot. Of... <laughs> Cheers, guys. See you later. Right, have a good one. And we'll see you tomorrow for another Football Social Daily. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.